You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognize that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance, and resilience for First Nations communities. A dark room can be something both exciting and terrifying. A dark idea can be something thrilling or maybe something horrifying. What is dark is so dependent on context and individual perception. This week, we are once again bringing you stories inspired by dark matter from the Masters of Journalism students at the University of Melbourne. Today's stories consist of more of our favourites and are part of All the Best's annual collaboration with the students. First up, Valentina talks to Professor Bruno, a research fellow at the University of Queensland, and learns of the dark and mysterious nature of anaesthetics. When I got my wisdom teeth out, it was quite a complicated surgery. But the surgery didn't hurt. In fact, I don't actually remember the surgery because the dentist told me it was best if I went under a general anaesthetic. It's a common medical procedure with the World Health Organization estimating 230 million people each year are treated with a general anaesthetic. And going under a general anaesthetic is a slightly different experience for everyone. Got asked to count like, you know, 10 to 1, and I think I made it as far as 8. Felt like I was talking to the doctor and then just fell asleep. Everything just went black. But do you actually know why general anaesthetics work? No, I don't really. No clue at all. Um, No, not really. I just trusted the doctor. So if no one here knows the answer, maybe we should go back in time to see if we can find the answer there. The year is 1846. Pope Pius has been selected as the new pope. The colony of New Zealand has just been granted self-government and in Massachusetts, dentist William Morton has just performed the first public demonstration of general anaesthetic. An article published in the People's Journal of Medicine refers to anaesthesia as The power to still the sense of pain, to veil the eye and memory from all the horrors of an operation. We've cured pain. Only one slight issue. No one actually knew why it worked. And as it turns out, almost 200 years later, no one still really knows why it works. General anaesthetics have been one of the greatest mysteries of medicine because consciousness is one of the deepest, darkest unknowns of science. But that could all be changing now. I spoke to Professor Bruno Van Swinderen from the University of Queensland, who has recently made some breakthroughs in our understanding of general anaesthetics and how our brain works, and the dangerous consequences of it. So the synapses where there's two neurons talking to each other, postsynaptic, presynaptic, and they communicate by sending chemicals from one to the other. And then we found, and others have found, that general anesthetics also affect the presynaptic side uh, so that it's basically preventing neurons from releasing those, those communication chemicals. Now, for those of us who don't know our presynapses from our postsynapses, essentially, to understand Professor Bruno's work, we need to think of our brain like a giant network of highways. 
Now, on a normal day, there's cars whizzing in every direction, going from one side of town to the other. Just like how in our brains, our neurons are firing messages from one part of the brain to the other. But essentially, what general anaesthetics is doing is stopping these cars from driving at all. Or in scientific terms, our presynaptic neurons are prohibited from firing any chemical messages to our postsynaptic neurons. And then that's when it gets interesting, right? So our average human brain has a, like 100 billion neurons and every neuron has maybe a thousand connections. That's like a trillion potential places in the brain that anesthetics are preventing things from happening. And what that means then in the way we see it right now, or at least the way I see it, is that Yes, general anesthetics are a sedative, but then they also cause, at the same time, a failure of the brain by preventing all these trillion points of contact from talking normally to each other. This presynaptic understanding of general anesthetics has been a huge revelation in the world of medicine, as it helps us to better understand one of the dangers of general anesthetic, which is post-operative cognitive dysfunction. This is a big hidden secret of general anesthesia. But if you're over 65 or if you have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, it's not recommended to have a long general anesthesia because recovery is really, really difficult. Around 50% of people who receive cardiac surgery over the age of 65 never fully recover. Their general anesthetic never fully wears off. But if you want to somehow deal with post-operative cognitive dysfunction, which is a big problem, there's no other way than understanding, okay, this is what anesthetics actually are doing. In 44 years' time, in 2066, I'll be 65. By then, the Australian Bureau of Statistics estimates 20% of the Australian population will be over the age of 65. Anesthesia and post-operative cognitive dysfunction pose a real risk to the future of Australia, which is why the work of researchers like Professor Bruno, who's working to uncover these hidden risks, is so crucial. Because without knowing why anaesthetics work, we can't know what they're doing to our brain. That story was produced by Valentina Bolta. Our next story shares the lives of two women from China who were forced into child marriage and have now courageously chosen to speak about their experiences. A warning that this story contains themes of child abuse and slavery. In an old faded photograph, a Chinese girl, not even four or five years old, is standing in front of a boy in a blue school uniform. Her little body is wrapped in a thick coat and her tiny hands clutch a toy. Her eyes are shining with unspoiled innocence, as if she is oblivious to the weight of the world. How adorable this brother and sister look. However, behind this seemingly harmonious picture is hiding an untold dark story. A story of the fate of a rural Chinese girl's marriage. A story that long remained veiled in shadows. The boy next to me is my brother. I married him when I was 16 years old. Miss Jin Zhang, the little girl in the photo, told me that the boy in the picture is not her biological brother. She was adopted by his parents in 1990, the same year she was born. Since then, she had a new identity as a Tongyangxi, 
which means child bride in English. Hongyangxi is an ancient Chinese marriage tradition where underage girls are sent or sold to another family, raised by them, and eventually married to their sons. When I was a child, every family in our village had a tongyangxi. No one liked girls at that time, so we were all sold for 200, 300, 400 yuan. Unfortunately, I wasn't very pretty. I didn't have very fair skin, and I had lots of mosquito bites all over my body. So I was sold for only 200. Zhang said all her childhood was filled with physical abuse. My adopted mother would beat me whenever she didn't like me. Once my brother and I were climbing a tree and he fell down, she kept scolding me, saying that if anything happened to my brother, she would kill me too. To make her adoptive parents happy, Zhang said she did everything she could by being a good girl. I have always been working for my family since I was seven or eight years old. We had cows, sheep, pigs, and chicken at home. I had to handle the cow and pig dung and dump them into the outside toilet. I had to pick vegetables from the field to feed the chicken and ducks. My hands have always been calloused. But even though I did all that, I never felt the love of my dad or my mom. When she was 15, Zhang's strict adoptive mother forced her to drop out of school. My adoptive mom was afraid that if I studied too much and became clever, I would run away and refuse to stay at home to get married. Every day, I dreamed of going to school. Sometimes I would cry in secret and wish my real parents would come and find me one day. In the summer of 2006, her adoptive parents let Zhang and her brother get married. How could I dare to rebel? I grew up knowing that I was going to marry my brother, and the whole village knew about it. So I didn't dare to fall in love with anyone else. However, not all stories of Tong Yangxi end in resignation and acceptance. Miss Lan Li who was also a Tongyangxi, born in 1975. After her husband's cheating, Lan Li chose to divorce. I spent the first half of my life living for my husband, and now I can finally live for myself. Despite facing questioning and judgment from the villagers, she firmly believes that her life is worth more than be someone's wife. Leaving a marriage was not easy, but I have dreams and I have rights. The fate of Tong Yangxi was something I couldn't change when I was young. But now I have grown up, and I have the right to decide my own life, my own future. Child marriages, once seen as a part of Chinese society, have gradually declined over the years. However, the echoes of these dark matters still resonate today. For these women, Children have become their hope, like Miss Jing Zhang, to redeem the love that was missing in her childhood. She made up for it in her children. Because there was no love in my childhood, I don't want my daughter to be like me, so I want to give her lots and lots of love. I went shopping with her and took pictures with her. I could hold my daughter and seeing only a good mother in the world. This is something I never experienced in my childhood. I know she needs this love, and I do too. That story was produced 
by Jan Lee. Next up, a deep dive into an aspect of Melbourne history that isn't regularly spoken about, and a reflection about its relevance in the world today. Melbourne's many lanes are famous for their street art, outdoor dining, and tiny cafes, bars, and restaurants, often only squeezing a handful of patrons into a space smaller than some bathrooms. But it wasn't always this way, and the lanes that tourists and locals alike flock to have a past that is little known about, and that few want to discuss. I was wondering if you know what Melbourne's laneways were originally used for in the 1800s? Have no idea. I haven't got clue. What no idea. I don't. I do not. So one of the main things they were used for is the night cart, which is a horse-drawn carriage that travelled around the lanes at night and emptied people's toilets before they developed sewer lines. That's something that most weren't comfortable talking about. Empty people's toilets? So, I don't know what to talk. Okay. As cities like Melbourne developed, they needed a way to deal with human waste. That was done through employing nightmen to operate the horse-drawn night carts. In nearby Ballarat, the tourist attraction and open-air museum in Sovereign Hill carries echoes of that past into the present, as actors play out the dramas of an 1850s gold mining town. Well, there you are, Mr Gardner. It's, it's imperative, sir. I've got you out today to clean out the cesspool at the rear of the Davison's property, I spoke sir. to Mr Gardner, Sovereign Hill's nightman, about his role in this 19th century town. What exactly does a nightman do? Uh, so I go around uh, on a night mostly. Uh, but I go around and I, uh, I clean out all the uh, cesspits, shall we say, the uh, the long drops, the outhouses. What does that involve cleaning out an outhouse and where does that go? What happens is I get these big buckets that I carry on my head. Um, so I stick them next to the, uh, the cesspit, get my shovel. So sometimes I've got to jump down into the long drop, um, empty that out into my bucket. Then I stick the bucket on my head, take it to my cart. And then when my night cart's full, I then take it out to the farms round and about. They take it and spread it all over their field. Why is that important? What happens if you don't have someone like yourself to do this job? Well, if you leave it to pile up too much, it starts to overflow and then it starts to leak out everywhere and then you start getting all sorts of diseases, typhoid, dysentery, cholera. Mr Gardner, virtually every member of this unfortunate house has been struck down with typhoid. Typhoid! There's no cause for alarm, sir. But if something isn't done about... As gold was found in Victoria and the population of Melbourne grew, the problems grew with it. A better solution was needed, and something resembling our modern system was finally installed, with Melbourne's first sewerage pumping station opening in Spotswood in 1898. Now it's something that we don't need, or like, to think about much anymore. We just flush, and the problem disappears. But that privilege of flushing and forgetting is still not true for much of the world. To find out what problems are still being faced today, I spoke to Charmaine Consol Gonsalves, the head of programs for WaterAid in Mozambique. You can't just improve access to water or improve access to decent sanitation if you're not practicing good hygiene or you don't have a toilet. For us, it's a holistic approach to what we call WASH, water, sanitation and hygiene. We're getting over a major cholera outbreak here in the country. To make toilets safe, the holes dug for them need to be reinforced. Most families can't afford that. In some areas, we've got very, very sandy soil. So in the wet season, when we get the rains and the floods and the cyclones, a lot of the toilets collapse and then the water table becomes contaminated. That's how we got our cholera outbreak this year. The United Nations has a number of sustainable development goals which are due to be completed by 2030. But at least with sanitation, 
That's looking unlikely. Are they on target to achieve the sanitation goals? Nationally, only 37% have a toilet. We're in 2023, we've got seven years left, and we're a long way off. Those problems extend far beyond Mozambique, with the United Nations stating that 2.5 billion people worldwide do not have adequate toilets, and 1 billion defecate in the open, putting them in danger of deadly diseases like diarrhoea. More than a quarter of a million children die each year due to unsafe water and sanitation. Diarrhea is still, in Mozambique, it's still the most likely cause of uh, mortality in children under five. It's a continuation of the same story we saw playing out 170 years before. The child at three has succumbed to this disease and the six-year-old is gravely ill. Something must be done. Now you listen to me, doctor. Children die all the time. Isn't that just a part of life? We can change it, madam. You know, there's a whole another aspect around what we call fecal sludge management. Once you have a toilet, (laughs) how do you empty it, right? You've got your sanitation workers that you have who, like you said, back in the 1800s, went around emptying those those toilets. That's still going on in, in lots of parts of the world. In crowded slum areas, informal sediments, we've actually done some work here in Mozambique designing technologies to get into those really difficult laneways. For decades, Melbourne's lanes were forgotten about and neglected before a revitalisation movement starting in the 90s sought to bring new life to places with a dark and odorous past. People don't like to talk about that past now. But when the challenges of yesterday are still being faced in Mozambique and elsewhere around the world, it's worth remembering where we've come from and how much work is still to be done. That story was produced by Timothy Ivitz. This next story shares the origins and impacts of biphobia in both Australian and Chinese culture. Bisexual greedy. Are you half gay and half straight? You're a traitor to the rainbow community. Oh, it's just a face. These are just a few of the ridiculous stereotypes that bisexual people have to deal with. The truth is, bisexual people face various forms of biphobia, including denial, exclusion, and a very specific issue, double discrimination, which means they get discriminated against both within and outside the LGBTQ community. In terms of broader society, Yeah, there's been standard examples of biphobia. Unfortunately, though, at times, elements of gays and lesbians have not been supportive as well. I felt very frustrated by that at times because often the things that have been said against gays and lesbians, they're reflecting back at us in terms of denials. And yet this was a point in time where gay men and lesbians were still being told Uh, If you just got some therapy, you'd be heterosexual like everyone else, which denies their identity. This is Sally Goldener, a bisexual and transgender activist who has worked for more than two decades to advocate for the rights of LGBTQ plus community in Victoria. She experienced such challenges since she embraced her bisexuality in the late 1990s. However, over two decades later, biphobia doesn't seem to be getting any better. According to the Bisexuality Report, 42% of bisexual people have faced discrimination or poor treatment within the LGBTQ community. In more recent times, the postal survey for marriage equality was appalling. It was so, you know, sort of small target. 
and Anna Brown, who is now the CEO of Equality Australia, who is not very well respected by many in the bi community, is on public record in front of a group of bi people as saying, oh, we couldn't tell bi stories during the postal survey because it was too complicated. Now, who's we? Who made that decision for whom, for starters? And then what's complicated about it? Given these circumstances, it is not surprising that some bi people choose to hide their true selves and switch their sexuality to avoid potential exclusion. Biphobia does exist in those ways. You know, bi people, they hear some of those stupid remarks like, get off the fence, make up your mind. So if they might identify as heterosexual in their more conservative workplace, they might say they're gay or lesbian at a so-called LGBTIQA plus nightclub. In such an environment, being a bi is tougher in the traditional countries, where awareness of sexual minorities is still pretty lacking. Leslie Wong was born and raised in a conservative country in China. She identified herself as straight until she fell for a girl at the age of 21. Since then, new challenges have arisen. Being bisexual in China is tough. So when it comes to dating, things can start off really good. You are vibing, having a good time. But as soon as you review your true sexual orientation, most people just shut you down. They think we're all cheaters, twice as likely to stray. People also ask me dumb questions like, so do you have a boyfriend and a girlfriend at the same time? The worst is when some straight guys hear about my bisexuality and the girls like, hey, if we date, can we have a threesome with your girlfriend? Bi people often receive such derogatory comments, which greatly increase their likelihood of depression and distress, says the bisexuality reports. On top of the usual biphobia, there is a unique dilemma for bi people in China, marriage. My ex-girlfriend broke up with me, saying that you're going to end up marrying a guy anyway. It's total nonsense. We have the right to choose whether or not to get married. This has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Influenced by traditional beliefs, if a person has not get married by a certain age in China, they would face tremendous pressure from society as a whole. And that's why bisexual often left out of the dating game. They're believed to inevitably marry someone of the opposite sex, which often leads to rejection by the same gender. We judge other people with so many labors, but forget that before someone becomes bisexual or anything else, they're themselves first. As Sally Gutner puts it, I want to be my total self as part of the whole. I want to be myself wherever I want and need to be. That story was produced by Nuo Shin Lee. For our last story, we're sharing a look into the pre-colonial roots of astrology and its importance in certain South Asian cultures. While astrology in itself is a new by any means, it's hard to deny how pervasive it has become on TikTok. Did you know the opposite of your rising sign? You have your sun, moon, The debate about whether astrology is a fad or genuine form of higher knowledge has been going on for years, but many astrophysicists say it's pseudoscience. But what if we cast our doubts and skepticism aside and listen to what astrologers have to say? The Vedic astrology is teaching us those 
ways of how we were before there was any trauma or any any of this pain that we've attached to our ego self and to our soul self. That was my friend Lakna Pereira who practices Vedic astrology or Joy Tish, a Sanskrit word that refers to light or heavenly body in Hinduism. It's just very ancient knowing of time known as the golden age where there was no fear or greed or all of like anger all of these things that we're experiencing right now however before we dove too deep into the conversation i asked lakna how she started out in astrology i grew up always being really spiritual i was always really intrigued by all of the planets and all of the solar system the stars in sri lanka like i was born there the culture like bases so much importance on astrology like so many little things in life we'd look into the stars to see if it's a good time my grandma did teach me a lot about that stuff. Um, She was very passionate about astrology. I was interested in finding out how her grandmother shaped her astrology practice. I thought that astrology was, you know, what we learn is like reading um, the planets and the aspects and how they connect to us. But Vedic astrology, what she's taught me is that it's so much more than that. It's like the whole connection to our body, to the earth, to the stars, to nature. It's a very holistic approach and realising that we are all one, we are all connected. That is all astrology as well. Lakna told me that astrology has helped her through some pretty dark times in her life. So definitely the last few years, um, I've gone through some very significant events. Um, got divorced, my best friend died, realising deep-seated issues with my family. All of these things, honestly, astrology has helped me through so much because it's just helped me to realise that this is a part of my purpose. And in astrology, there's different houses which tell you what sort of themes are going to play out um, in your life. For me, a huge theme in my life with the 12th house is death and connection to other realms, connection to the spiritual and the unseen. Um, And I believe that's why my best friend like had to pass very young um, and I feel more connected to her than I have ever been. Learning about astrology has helped me realise like this is part of my gifts, like being able to connect in that way and part of my purpose. Interestingly, ancient Vedic scriptures such as the Lakshmi Tantra dedicated to the worship of the goddess herself have acknowledged the existence of what scientists today describe as dark matter and energy. In order to fill the vast void of the universe, universe with myself, I assumed another form, mainly consisting of only tamas, dark energy or the quality or stuff of darkness. What um, Goddess Lakshmi is saying that in order for her to fill the universe, she had to become dark matter. And Goddess Lakshmi in astrology is the ruler of the planet Venus. So she had to fill the entire universe firstly with that tamas energy, which is known to be inactivity, greed, lust, money, all of the selfish desires. Ultimately is the teachings of Venus, which is to love everything, to love nature, to love others. In order to do that, you need to be selfish first and you need to love yourself first. Then, a question was nagging at me. How does the idea of dark matter look like in our everyday lives? A really good example is reading someone's birth chart. Your birth chart is 
like the map to your life there's a lot of different pathways you can take that's not one set in stone but there will always be these things that come up these things that are difficult and that hurt you or that like steer you off track or those that they seem to steer you off track and these are invisible forces of energy that all working out in our favor to help us grow to help us evolve but yes this is the dark matter that um joytish speaks of after i finished my conversation with lagna i realized that it doesn't matter if you're a believer of astrology or not but these are valuable teachings from ancient past we can impart in our daily lives that the challenges we face in our journey shape us to become who we want to be. After all, what's wrong with looking at the stars to remind us that we have the power to carve our own destinies? That story was produced by Philemon Ho. Supervising production for all of today's stories were by Sammy Shah, Daniel Simo and Mel Chun. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arande and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. And Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.